0: Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is
1: Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on TAP, we have Unbreakable, starring Bruce Willis, Samuel L. Jackson, and Robin Wright Penn, directed by M. Night Shyamalan. And we would like to welcome our listeners to our very first episode of Rye Smile Films, the film review podcast that's going to mix fine spirits with fine films. And today we're sitting down with a glass of Basil Hayden's, which I just recently found out is part of the Jim Beam family, which, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. But before we get started today, I'm going to hand it off to Matt here. And Matt's going to explain a little bit about what to expect from the Rise Smile Films experience.
0: So when this began, Rise Smile Films was launched out of a necessity between myself and Jesse to take what we speak about for countless hours with each other and try to put it in a form that's entertaining for you all. That's the ultimate goal. Is we want this to be entertaining, informative, Maybe it turns you on to some films you've seen. Maybe it turns you off to some films you've already seen. Regardless, it's just film discussion or analysis. The way we're going to approach films, I think, is best described as thematic. That way, there isn't a necessity on only contemporary. Time doesn't matter by that. I mean, we could be anything from golden age to mid-80s to what's currently happening right now. And with that, the first theme that we wanted to look at is... The East Rail 177 Trilogy. Uh, I think it's a really fantastic story. And we'd like to kind of introduce this as our first podcast. Because this movie has been very instrumental in lots of things that Jesse and I have been involved in. Uh, Landmark would be uh, maybe an understatement, Jesse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we'll look at it thematically. Okay. Um, So contemporary film classic cinema or even genre pieces. There is no essential insistence on a specific time period. It can be anything. Um, We'll break the podcast down into three parts. So the first part will be what we call the flight, which is almost like uh, the appetizer, if you will. And obviously with the tie to the um, fine spirits we're speaking about, it kind of fits the mold. And then from that, we'll move into the happy hour, which is that's the breakdown of the actual movie and the thoughts we had about it. And then we'll close with the nightcap which uh, will kind of leave as sort of a teaser or something to kind of think you uh, take you out as uh, with some thoughts about film. The grading, which would be the critique part, will also be based on um, the the quality of the liquor. So we have five different levels. Like the worst level, we're going to call rot gut. Second level would be well. Third call. Fourth single barrel and top shelf. With each one of those moving from the first to the last. Uh, increasing in the preference or um, how much we like the movie. Mm-hmm.
1: So Rock uh, equivalency would be like Manos, the Hands of Fate or Suicide Squad. No no, no hiding how I feel about that one. With Top Shelf being like the truly fine cinema, like looking at like such classics as like The Godfather, uh, films like that.
0: And so with that, I mean, I that's the basis for the way we're going to build the podcast. And we'll kick it off with, I guess, the flight.
1: The flight. So, Matt, this was a question I posed to you a couple days ago. Um, now that we're in the new year, 2019, I wanted you to look back at everything you saw. And I know we both saw a lot of, a lot of films in 2018. So two questions to you. First, What was the film that most surprised you? Not necessarily maybe the best movie, but like what were you thoroughly surprised by? And then the second part to that, what was the film that disappointed you the most? Maybe something you were looking forward to that didn't quite live up to expectations.
0: So the first movie or the first question I'm going to answer with a really common film that I think many people saw, which is Creed Two. And everyone, you're probably thinking like, well, how is that surprising? I'm not really sure what number in the Rocky legacy this is. It's like maybe eight now. So I don't know if there's a lot of untapped territory or unventured territory. What was really surprising about that film for me, and again, I'm going to admit that I am a shameless Rocky fan, so it is biased. All of this is going to be biased. Same here. Okay. What shocked me about that film were two things. The amount of damage that Creed takes in the movie and the impact that it had on the audience. So when I was in that theater, when he is just getting pummeled in the first fight, he was pummeled in the second fight too, but in the first fight, Mm -hmm. the people around me, you could hear, ah, ooh, rustling and uncomfortable, and you could feel the blows. Like one of the things that they really do well in that franchise is make the sound of the impact on the punches felt by the audience. And I got to tell you, I left that film feeling a little beat up myself. So that was what was surprising for me. It was a boxing movie. Of course, there's gonna be a heavy dose of violence and damage that's dished out. And to me, I had no idea it could be done that way. And the second thing that surprised me as much, if not maybe more, was the theme of fatherhood in that film. It's everywhere in the movie. And I didn't expect it to be delivered with the subtle grace that they did. I was more than pleasantly surprised by it and quite frankly it was what i enjoyed about the movie the most
1: Mm -hmm. and i have to i have to second that too i was very pleased with creed 2 and you're right this is number eight in the rocky creed series if we want to call it that um and bar film five they really haven't had like a significant misstep and this, There's always that
0: disclaimer, isn't there? Exactly. Except for Rocky Five, so I, I pretend it doesn't even exist. <laughs> right? Yeah.
1: Much like the Star Wars prequels. Anyway, yeah. but um, uh, it's a it's a sequel to Creed Two, yeah. but it's also a sequel, uh, to Rocky Four, and also kind of a bit of a quasi remake to Rocky Two. I mean, he had has kind of this the same path in there. Yeah, we'll see. But yeah, you know, th- they were minus director Ryan Coogler, who had done. Fruitville Station, Creed One, and Black Panther, um, and some different people involved with with the script, but the movie still came out really, really well. And you know, you're right. It's like how much territory is left for this franchise, but they still managed to keep it front and center with human themes, which make it relatable. They're, they're not just pummel boxing movies. They've they've never been that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I would have to agree. I was I was very thoroughly pleased by. By, by Creed 2. The one I would have to pick, and I know we're going to differ a little bit on this one just because you're not as much of an animated film guy as I am, but the film that surprised me the most in 2018 was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Primarily because when that first trailer came out, and that might have been in the summer when it, it was first released, man, that trailer did nothing for me. Like, I uh, I thought it was a little kind of wacky looking, you know, yeah. I the, the story was kind of a little bit whack too, mm-hmm. but, and I was like, I don't know if I want to see that. Maybe, you know, if it's on TV or one of the streaming services, I'll, I'll catch it. But I did, I did eventually go see it and I was just thoroughly kind of blown with the same things. There was a lot of human themes in that movie, which, you know, is probably also what makes Spider-Man the all whole canon of Spider-Man maybe the most interesting marvel character that's out there.
0: Yeah.
1: But between the stuff they did with Miles Morales and his father and, you know, tapping into the different spider-verses while still keeping it, you know, kind of the Miles and Peter Parker relationship, kind of almost like this surrogate father um type of teaching. You know, I was kind of I was kind of blown away by this. It could have been, you know, pretty ridiculous and it does reach as ridiculous heights, but Man, For animated, I thought it had a unique kind of comic pain style that was quasi 3D, but you didn't need the glasses for it. Like, it had a, it had his style into itself, and
0: but Sony tries to trying to patent, if I'm not mistaken, ex- right? exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah, so <clears throat> I've talked about this with, with Matt a lot this year. That probably a pretty great year for Spider Man, you know, with this film, yeah, um, the game, the, the, the PS4 game, mm-hmm. uh, the um kind of believable success that Venom had like money wise yeah. and his inclusion in Infinity War I mean it was a good year for the character but thoroughly, su- pleased, uh, thoroughly pleased by Into the Spider-Verse.
0: Yeah you know um, it's certainly in contention for the same discussion for me. Uh, I gotta be honest I saw the trailer and the first thing I said was no way. Mm-hmm. Um, The reviews came back from some people that uh, I think have a bit of the um, same sort of taste and film that I do and we went to go see it and I was pleasantly surprised that I didn't want to run out of the seat, which mm-hmm. I kind of expected. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, I really did enjoy that film, like really enjoyed the film, Mm -hmm. up until about the last 15 minutes.
1: Um, And again, that's the part where it gets pretty, there's a lot going on on the screen, not necessarily story-wise. Right. And it's just a lot to comprehend at at once. Yeah.
0: It was super busy. Mm -hmm. Once the collider explodes or collapses and we sort of lose any time, uh, geometry or time or weight, uh, I found myself getting a little bit Michael Bay, mm-hmm. Transformery mishmash of bullshit on the screen. Mm-hmm. But that being said, three quarters of that movie were really solid. The mm-hmm. part that was grounded and domestic, mm-hmm. I really thoroughly enjoyed. But yeah, mm-hmm. so I'm actually maybe in agreement with you more than you might be. Yeah. So I'll give you the question that you gave me biggest disappointment.
1: Now my biggest disappointment, I don't know. It's just like, I think there's a lot of potential with, you know, with summer summer blockbuster movies, and as much as I didn't think we needed Han Solo a Star Wars story, or Solo a Star Wars story, yeah, there was a part of me that did want to see it. Like I could, you could make an argument that Han Solo's the most interesting and you know like likable character in the entire Star Wars universe. So why not? Why would it not an origin story like be appealing? And I think between the trouble production and, you know, the directors, you know, getting fired and then bringing Ron Howard on and the rewrites and the reshoots, it's just not a complete movie. I mean, the beginning is pretty schlocky. The ending is nowhere near a uh, climactic enough for the character. I mean, it has a pretty compelling middle and that's when he meets Lando and, you know, they, they, they go do this, the, the what's the Kessel run? And that's the most interesting part of the movie, but... I just think kind of a wasted opportunity. Um, yeah, that's. I guess that, I guess that's all I can say from it. I don't know if I really need any more of these Star Wars origin stories, if they're going to be done like that.
0: Yeah, I think we've seen about all the prequels we can handle, handle in Star Wars, and I just don't think any of them deliver. <clears throat> um, yeah, the Kessel Run, which is essentially a throwaway line about the Millennium Falcon being spun into an entire movie for the character, I thought was the wrong approach because we didn't get what we all wanted, which was what's the Lando Java story, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't get that. Um, so,
1: yeah, big and, miss. And real quick, and my my biggest gripe, and it was like within the first ten minutes of the movie, and I already knew that it was it was on a bad track from this. Yeah, when he gets his name, and he's just going as Han at this point, so he goes to sign up to be an Imperial stormtrooper. Yeah, and the data guy's entering in his name into the computer, and he says. Han he's like what's your first name he says Han he says what's your last name he's like I don't have one he's like you don't have a last name he's like I'm alone I've always been alone and this data tech goes okay then Han Solo he gives him the last name and it's the dumbest thing and the dumbest way to to get the name and it's just ridiculous and I was out that was 10 minutes in and I was already like rolling my eyes and looking the other way yeah, but. I agree with
0: you. And I do need to back up one thing because there is one really good prequel and that was Rogue One. That mm-hmm. was terrific. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, yes. The 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 movie from Silly Story to the problems with production was doomed from the get-go. But that's not mine. Okay, I'm going to have to give this and this might seem like low-hanging fruit because I think our expectations are tempered anytime we see the letters DC put next to any production. But it had to have been Aquaman. And here's why I'm going to say this. If Star, no, Star Wars... If Marvel can do what it did with Ant-Man, which is ground something in a D-list character that I think everyone from Gen X and maybe even a little before that was like, Oh my God, is this going to be Honey, I Shrunk the Kids with a better, more muscular version of Rick Moranis. Okay, right? (laughs) Yes. And turn it into a heist movie Mm -hmm. with really cool characters and great moments of levity. I was hopeful DC could deliver. And, you know, Aquaman has a world unto himself that could be underwater and it can be done in a cool way. But the movie itself, story-wise, is just awful. In a scene-by-scene sequence to sit down and watch, it's probably okay. Because that movie... Does a really good job of taking a lot of momentary pieces that have been delivered well in other films and smashing it into its movie for two and a half hours of reheated Indiana Jones and the Well of Souls, Velociraptors and anything Jurassic Park. Um, we can go on. Go ahead. Yeah. Black
1: Panther, Thor, like it. It, it Lord of the Avatar. Rings. It takes from all of these movies. Clash of
0: the Titans. Like it steals all that and smashes it into five poorly told stories that should have been one story which was a either Aquaman reclaiming the throne or Aquaman exploring what makes him powerful mm-hmm. that's what that should have been mm-hmm. okay instead we got kind of a a, a poorly bla- a poorly done black manta seven army like th- it's just a mess and if you all have seen that I think you can recognize that there's lots of different irons on the fire and because there's so many, None of them are that hot.
1: Excellent. That's some pretty surprising films, but also some pretty disappointing ones. Yeah. So
0: let's get to what we're here for,
1: right? Which exactly. Is unbreakable. Exactly. Yeah. So okay. let's get to what we're going to call happy hour. happy hour. And this is Unbreakable. Mm-hmm. So again, uh, this is going to be the last warning for any spoilers. You should have heard that in the intro, but... Well, if we're a spoiling it, it, Unbreakable, shame on you. Exactly. But it really applies to this movie. There's a really great t- twist in here that we are going to talk about. But um, before we get right into it, let me give you a brief synopsis of Unbreakable. And
0: away we go.
1: The film starts out with uh, the birth of Elijah Price. Who has been born with multiple fractures in both his arms and his legs, and as we learn throughout the rest of the film, suffers from a, a degenerative disease called osteogenesis imperfecta, which means his bones don't produce a certain calcium or protein, and they're very brittle, and um, they can break a lot easier than, than than ours can.
0: He has the rarest form. He's a type 1. Mm-hmm. Type 4s don't live too long. Exactly. <laughs> from the movie.
1: Yeah. So the movie does a good job of contrasting Elijah's kind of, you know, upbringing and him struggling as a child with this. And then we're immediately introduced uh, to David Dunn. Now, David Dunn is a mild-mannered security guard at FSU University, which is probably like a low-level Division II school in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, kind of really going through the motions of life unhappy, has a struggling marriage, has a strained relationship with his son Joseph, and uh, while riding home from a job interview from New York one day, he is uh, involved with multiple other passengers in a derailment accident that leaves everybody dead except him. But here's the kicker, he doesn't have a single broken bone and he doesn't have a scratch on him and he's the sole survivor and from that point on david kind of goes through a bit of you know what happens to people that survive traumatic events a bit of survivor's guilt of yeah how why come me? All, why me why yeah. was i left alive and all these people and even when he's leaving the hospital they kind of look at him a little strangely of how come you're still alive and no one else is yeah. but through that um Elijah reaches out to him, asking him, have you been sick a day in your life? And this intrigues David. And so he seeks out Elijah, where Elijah just kind of breaks it to him that he sought out David because he heard the story and heard that there was a sole survivor and he was miraculously unharmed. Now, the reason he's been searching for this person is Elijah's philosophy is if there's someone at one end of the spectrum, like myself, that breaks easily isn't there someone at the other end of the spe- spectrum who's unbreakable? But David isn't quick to jump on board this train. He's really neglect. He's like, no, I've been sick before. I have been hurt. I used to play football and I was in an accident. So he's really hesitant to, you know, accept what Elijah says and everyone puts him off as crazy, but kind of through, um, I guess, a bit of curiosity throughout the film, he has, and we'll talk about some of these, kind of goes through the stages of a hero's origin story, testing the limits of one's own strength, um, looking into have I been sick and then finding out you know the absolute truth, trying to, to, to debunk all this. And he has a bit of a precognition that when he touches people, he can see uh, almost kind of glimpses of things they've, um, is it things they've done before? Or things they are going to do it's things they've done already right
0: yeah things that they've done before and we'll make the case of this in a little bit Mm -hmm. might be the actual worst superpower you could ever have Mm -hmm. how do you ever at that point with that ability Mm -hmm. to like touch someone and see all of their previous sins Mm -hmm. ever establish any kind of a lasting relationship Mm -hmm. it's a curse we like it Mm -hmm. Because it allows you to see the sins of the you know, bad guys and such. Mm-hmm. But it also allows you to see the sins of the good guys. Mm-hmm. And then when you find them out, maybe I'm getting into this now, I guess. huh? Yeah. Then when you find out what those sins are, what do you do with them? So you know that this particular woman stole a necklace. Mm-hmm. So do you go to the police and say, hey, that woman stole the necklace? Yeah, how do you
1: prove that? Exactly. Because
0: yeah. then you just look like, well, a lunatic. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And that, I mean, she's a bad guy, like Mm -hmm. street level criminal, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. But I also pause because I think it's part of the problem between him and his wife. Mm -hmm. There's a really poignant moment in that movie when as two estranged parents that are living in opposite ends of the house, they're trying to figure out a way to put it back together. And she visits his, the door of his bedroom one night. Mm -hmm. And she asks, you know, since we've been having problems, I want to ask you. And your answer won't affect me, which is mm-hmm. the girl trap that every male falls for all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like if that ever gets said, it's time to find a lawyer, <laughs> yeah. right? But he falls for it. But he says, just tell me the truth. It won't matter one way or the other, which of course it will. But his answer is, I haven't been with anyone else. Mm-hmm. And I'm always stuck in that scene thinking, I wonder if the answer that causes her to break down, which is no from him, is the opposite for her, mm-hmm. which is... I have. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then what does he do if the answer is yes, mm-hmm. when at any point he lays his hands on her? Exactly. Which he's going to later, and we'll get to that in a minute, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of a cool moment too. Mm-hmm. and gets to like the essence of what makes the movie work for me, which is its subtleness. But I, you know, keep mm-hmm. going, yeah.
1: Exactly. So it eventually comes to a head, and his son is almost, I almost want to say a little bit of a sidekick, mm-hmm. but wanting mm-hmm. to prove the truth with dad. But it's almost kind of a window back into a life with dad um trying to prove that he is something special and there's a scene where he pulls a gun on him and is going to shoot him and he says you won't get hurt let me just show you and it really kind of boils to a head and you know at this point david's goes to elijah and says stop messing with my family stop messing with my life you're crazy i don't want any part of this and then the kicker for david dunn then is he did find out he um Almost died at an early age uh, when um, some kids were dunking him in a pool and he almost drowned. He took on too much water and he had pneumonia for uh, a few weeks in the hospital. Elijah realized this. And at that moment, it's the aha moment where that's your weakness. That's your kryptonite. Uh, And so at that point, David's like, you're right. I haven't been sick a day in my life. I wasn't injured in that car accident. I've been hiding all of these things. What do I need to do so Elijah tells him, you need to go to where people are. So that sets it off into the last third of the movie, which is him becoming uh, this this character, which he's been named in uh, the upcoming Glass movie. I guess they've been calling him in Philly the Overseer. Hmm. It's kind of his, his name. Okay. But he goes to the train station and tries to almost kind of pick out, you know, the worst of the crime, so to speak. Yeah. And it's this home invasion where... Um, it's going to involve you know the murder of some parents and these kids captive, so he then goes to the house. He saves the kids, does battle with what's called the Orange Man, and more on that in a second. And he reconnects that flame with his wife as much as as we can see. We'll, we'll talk about that one because that that's a, that's a real great moment. It's it's one and it's one line. And this was the genius of Shyamalan, early Shyamalan. Yeah. Um, and that leads to. What may be one of the best twists in all of film cinema. But before we get to that, let's kind of start back at the beginning. And I want to ask you first, Matt, because we we have a very interesting history with this movie and the legacy of this movie. Tell me about the first time you saw Unbreakable, because it's a little bit different than mine.
0: Okay, so understand that Unbreakable was the follow-up to The Sixth Sense. And although... The ending of The Sixth Sense has sort of been bastardized in some ways now. Uh, When that movie was in its first release in the studios, everyone loved it Mm -hmm. and especially loved the ending. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think the way the movie was promoted, which was in the initial trailer, it seemed to border somewhere between thriller, possibly horror, having something to do with the train. And I remember the first time I saw the trailer, I thought, that looks like a monster movie. Like some monster crushed this. How did we get there? Okay. Mm-hmm. So the movie opens and it's about two hours, mm-hmm. give or take. And so people were pretty quiet and pretty still, which is something I try to gauge when I'm in the theater. Cause I think the more movement there is, it's one of two things. People are bored and they're going to get something else to eat or to the bathroom or the movies making them uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it was pretty still quiet theater, so I think people were fairly engaged. Mm -hmm. And then the movie ends and you get to what was the twist ending, if you want to call it the twist ending or the reveal. Mm -hmm. And the movie ends, and I swear to God, the people that we saw with said, I can't believe that's the ending to this film. Are you effing kidding me? And I looked at them and said, what do you mean that was brilliant? And the guys that, the guy that I was with said, they call me Mr. Glass, that's the end of the film. And I think what people neglected to realize at that moment is they just spent two hours in an Autour superhero origin story
1: in a time when superhero films weren't the norm. I think I, four I,
0: months after the X Men, that's where we're at in the superhero yeah. thing. So like we've got the Blade stuff. Who cares? Yeah. Although hugely important to Marvel, mm-hmm. but X Men had been released prior. I think it was four that, or five. It was months. that summer, June. Right. Mm-hmm. And. Also, kind of a weird time of the year to release the movie, November. Yeah, It's not a November film. Mm-hmm. So you get what is a very <clears throat> deliberate and subtle character study in a superhero origin movie. And mm-hmm. I think even today, we would struggle a bit with that, mm-hmm. but especially back then, which what almost 20 years ago, mm-hmm. people were not at all ready for a smart, Mm-hmm. Calculated, artistic, grounded mm-hmm. superhero film. Exactly. And so, yeah, the to, I guess that's a long answer. To your question is I think most of the audience was pretty unhappy. Yeah, the theater was packed, and there was a, a noticeable rumble. Mm -hmm. of discontent Mm -hmm. as we walked out that night. Now, I literally had the hair standing up on my arms. I want
1: more. I got to see more to that. Yeah. And then so
0: begins the story, right? (laughs) Exactly. The eternal chase for... The sequel. Sequels. Mm -hmm. And the story and the urban legend and this person has the script and the night chronicles. Yeah. And the fact that we are where we are a weekish away from...
1: What, it's, a, it's amazing what, it's what like, could it could be a monumental
0: day for you and I both yeah it's truly remarkable exactly right? yeah. yeah
1: it's like the last leg of a marathon and we're like almost there we're gonna get well, a th- marathon
0: where we broke our leg and like the, the, the
1: you yeah. know, a funeral procession drove through the middle of it exactly and, you know, it's been what yeah. kind of a marathon yeah <laughs> So I have a bit of a different path to Unbreakable because yeah. I did Shyamalan's movies all backwards and mishmashed. I had the twist for the Sixth Sense ruined for me, so I kind of avoided it. I did eventually see it, and I actually do really, really love that movie. Yeah, but I saw Signs first in the theater, and I was like, "Who's this guy, Shyamalan?" Like that, that like that was great. That blew me away. It was like this alien invasion, and this, and this is the genius of early Shyamalan was he was doing these high concept um, ideas uh, masked around like. Wrought family dramas like mm-hmm. Signs is a story about a man who loses his faith, set during an alien invasion. Umbrella is a story about because God fa- wouldn't
0: save his wife.
1: Yeah, it's a story about family turmoil, um, dissociated relationships with wife and son as a superhero movie. Yep. And Sixth Sense is, um, struggling to let go of the past and, and have a, any type of communication with both wife and mother and son and it's a ghost movie and the, the, and those are the the forefronts it just so happens to be a ghost movie or it just so happens to be a superhero movie it's almost like an afterthought yeah um so i saw signs first really blown away and then i think it was it was about a month away from the release of the village This is 2004 and abc was doing a a Shyamalan film a week on saturday night they did six sense i missed that one is that right really yeah, they yeah. really did that yeah they did six sense and then they were going to do Signs and then Unbreakable. And I was like, I need to see Unbreakable because that's, I haven't seen that one. So I sat there and I have to sit through it with the commercials. And when you watch The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable on TV, it's like an expanded version. There's more scenes in it um, than you watch like in the theater or at home. And I actually want to talk about a couple of those scenes here in a bit. But I was absolutely blown away. And it was, it was probably about... Maybe halfway through, when I realized I was like, "This is kind of like a superhero movie, but like a super grounded superhero film." And then when we got to the ending, and it like it 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 made everything come full circle, I was so shocked, and like I was like, "Man, I was so tricked! I was Shyamalan." That's probably like an Urban Dictionary phrase, <laughs> um, yeah. but uh, I was just blown away. And then I kind of did some research, and I was like, "Has anyone seen this movie?" And like, here's the thing: is that a lot of people haven't seen this movie. So, you know, I have, like, a back pocket of film recommendations. You know, they include, like, John Carpenter's The Thing and The Descent, you know, if you want horror. But for a movie that I know people are going to like, that they I know they haven't seen, I always recommend Unbreakable just because you're going to love it. And you're going to love the, the journey along the way. So...
0: I agree. Mm-hmm. We uh, did that film in... You know, my film class mm-hmm. this week, Unbreakable, just getting ready for class. And I got to tell you, students, there was not a person in that group that did not like that film. Mm-hmm. Now, it's taken a while for them to get there. I mean, if I probably roll that out on day one, maybe not. Yeah. But they certainly <clears throat> seem to enjoy it now. And even if you, even if the ending isn't the payoff that you want, it's hard to argue with the precision Mm -hmm. that he shoots the film with. Mm -hmm. So let me give you, I think, what's a really good example of that precision, okay? Okay. So after David Dunn, which is the Bruce Willis character, the, what'd you say, overseer? The overseer. The overseer, as we've named him now, finds the street-level criminal that he's going to pursue, Mr. Orange, Mm -hmm. follows him home, begins Mm -hmm. the process of rescuing the family that Mr. Orange has tied up, and house-abducted, I guess you could say, he is shown through a window with some drapes that mostly cover our point of view. And then through the mastery of moving these drapes and the precision of his camera, what you get is a piece by piece, moment by moment, look at the progression of David Dunn, the girl he's gonna protect or try to rescue, which is I think the mother. Mm-hmm who, by the way, is deceased. Mm -hmm. And as he moves through that, unknown to David Dunn, but yet revealed to us in a very Hitchcockian way, Mm -hmm. is the guy in orange. Mm -hmm. He can't see it. Mm -hmm. And we are only just revealed because the drape just moved to where we see that part of the camera, right? And then the thing closes on David Dunn, knocks him out the window into the swimming pool, and we get that sequence, which is... The swimming pool cover covering him and his his submergence. And we recognize at that point, oh, man, now he's in the middle of what his weakness is. And it's raining on top of it. And that uh, two minutes, three minutes, maybe Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that sequence is everything to me that makes him as precise and in control of what he's showing the audience as anyone that I can think in recent memory
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know remember like <clears throat> back to the Shamilin, um ABC thing you were talking about yeah his story is one where him and Fincher and Nolan mm-hmm. and Soderberg all are kind of breaking in at about the same time yeah and there's this new wave of directors mm-hmm. that's coming that's going to change right it's Fincher this, this, this
1: post early 90s indie movement to this kind of like, Indie movement, but like almost high concept indie movement. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like Memento.
0: Memento. Seven, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Unbreakable. Six. We can go on, right? Right. Yep. So on and so forth. And all those guys continue to sort of ascend the ladder. And this movie for Shyamalan,
1: mm-hmm.
0: sadly, mm-hmm. is the beginning of, I don't want to say his downfall, yeah. but decline mm-hmm. for a movie that I will argue mm-hmm. is almost perfect mm-hmm. almost
1: yeah okay i would agree too and and like and then science came out after this and was actually a bit a bit more of a money maker than unbreakable was so he had another big hit on his hands but i noticed the wheels coming off the horse uh in the village i'm gonna talk about that in a minute because i want to talk about Shyamalan's film history but um
0: well so the th- crazy thing like okay so you asked about my experience in the mm-hmm. theater yeah and i think Mine was different than... But what I thought about the film was different than, than what most people mm-hmm. uh, saw or or thought. Okay, so the numbers come back, right? Yep. And it makes about $95 million. Mm-hmm. Which, Touchstone at the time, you think would be pretty happy with. But mm-hmm. here's the thing. Mm-hmm. The movie costs $75 million to make.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. So but, yeah, I have here written, budget was $75 million, which when you watch it, you're like... Really? There's like, no spaceship, no yeah.
0: buildings come down. We don't yeah. have any huge set pieces. It's a character study. that cost seventy five million dollars.
1: And I did a little research to kind of trying to find out like, what did they spend this money on? So, the worldwide gross for Unbreakable was two hundred forty eight million, which yeah, okay. Um, but compared to The Sixth Sense, that was six hundred seventy two. Like that's a huge movie. Yeah. With nominated for best picture, director, screenplay. Shyamalan suffers from. A bit of Orson Welles complex, yes, I think, exactly. because like you almost sh- shatter under the 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 out of the gate of your own brilliance and so it, like
0: I see dead people as Rosebud exactly and, and, and unbreakable as the Magnificent Ambersons exactly right yeah,
1: perfect comparison and there's like no like pleasing people that want more of that right and and when it goes uh-huh. over budget uh-huh.
0: and is delayed uh-huh. like the Magnificent Ambersons yeah. And then the numbers kind of limp across the line with a little less money than you thought it was going to make mm-hmm. or which look, $95 million back prior to two
1: thousand the mm-hmm.
0: Infinity War, you know, huge $200 mm-hmm. million dollar Black Panther opening weekend. Like yeah. that's still a big, big mm-hmm. open.
1: So I think Shyamalan had free sandbox in Hollywood after the mm-hmm. huge success of Sixth Sense. So they he'd written the screenplay while they were making that movie. Maybe he'd been thinking about it for a long time. I don't know. But they paid him, he wrote it on speculation, a spec script, for five. They paid him five million, which was like a then record. And then they gave him another five million to direct them. So that's $10 million of the film's budget. Before he even
0: started principal photography. Yeah.
1: And guaranteed they paid Willis 15 to 20 million, Jackson 15 to 20 million probably. You're up to 40 to 35 million dollars before you even shot one reel of film. And that doesn't even count marketing, right. which they, let's talk about how they botched that because they sold it as a... Trailer was terrible. Trailer was terrible. But it, it was written as a spec screenplay. And Matt, could you kind of explain a little bit to the listeners what that is?
0: So essentially there's two ways you write a screenplay, right? One is you adapt something from an already pre-established entity, whether that's a book or um, a magazine or maybe life rights. Okay, those are adapted screenplays. That's your Harry Potter's pretty much anything Marvel at this point. Um, The other one would be a spec screenplay and that's original story created in the pages of the screenplay. So story told first time through screenplay, which is a challenge because it's not the most pleasant read. It's dry. There's no omniscient. You um, don't write from what people are thinking. There's very little narrative. It tends to be a bit of a dry read, and that makes it kind of a tough sell. And didn't you say that at the time it set the record for spec screenplay sale? Five million, that's a huge Yeah, deal. and who bought it?
1: Uh, Disney. Touch- which, what? Yeah.
0: What the hell yeah. were they going to do with that film? Yeah, it
1: was their Touchstone line, which is their more adult-centered uh, film distribution line but exactly this is yeah this, this is
0: disney pre-espn california angels marvel star wars this is just like mickey disney <laughs> yes,
1: mickey, right mickey disney right yeah so yeah kind of like yeah a real botched type of type of move on their part but um yeah the, just the whole film in just in general the way it came out of the can the amount of money spent on it compare the 75 million dollar budget of unbreakable Mm -hmm. to the nine million dollar budget of split Mm -hmm. when we'll talk about next next week that's apples and oranges man i mean like nine versus 75 and then the the revenue generated also yeah the return on investment for split it was the most profitable film money-wise in all of 2017 but um
0: so story has it with unbreakable right the numbers mm -hmm. come back exactly they pull shemylan in Mm -hmm. universal touchstone touchstone yeah And say, look, I know you have a trilogy planned here. Mm -hmm. That's not happening. Mm -hmm. Well, the second screenplay is already written, so the story goes. Mm -hmm. And the beats for the third one are already written. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah, well, maybe some other time, buddy. It's not happening. And he actually goes into a bit of a funk. Like, literally, I'm going to get out of Hollywood for a while and go figure out what happened to this piece that's going to be my seminal vehicle. Exactly. And then he comes back with, you know, a resurrection of sorts, if you will. Yeah. But... A resurrection of sorts box office, but not nearly as good a film and Mm -hmm. science. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing that's crazy, right? From that point... Mm We see a pretty steady decrease in the quality of
1: film. Like pretty, each film was a significant decrease, and I noticed it in the village. And I, I can tell you the moment it happened. And that movie Stay was. In? <laughs> <laughs> I like half of the village, mm-hmm. and like for the most part, it's a monster movie and like Quaker times, like whatever. Like I kind of, I kind of dig it, and it's kind of a little scary. The movie totally falls off the rails when William Hurt takes uh, Bryce Dallas Howard to the shack. Spoiler alert again. Um, and shows them that they're the ones dressing up as these creatures in the thing. And you're like, what the... F-? I think
0: I missed that part because i already set myself on fire. <laughs> what
1: the hell? Yeah, so, they're like, okay, so that... that Strike one. So, I was one? like... One? Yeah, strike one for Shyamalan. Okay. So, then I gave him the benefit that I was like, ah, maybe that was, wasn't was as good as the other ones. But I'll go see the next one, Lady in the Water. Oh like, God. What? bullshit is that movie. And I could never watch it again and I haven't watched it again. And I don't know if people are watching that more than one time, like, reevaluate your life decisions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so then, and then I was kind of a little off Shyamalan at this point and then news came out that his next film, The Happening, was going to be his first R-rated movie and we're like, ooh, interesting, like, more adult oriented. No, that, that's one of the 10 worst movies ever made. Ever. Ever made. And it's just, Mark Wahlberg is just so atrocious in it, and the story is so asinine that it's like killer wind spores. Like, let's not even talk about that.
0: Mark Wahlberg may not be good in it, but at least he didn't have a good script to work with. Oh,
1: dear God. Killer plants. Yeah, killer plants. What? So I'm off the train at this point. Yeah. I didn't go see The Last Aaron Bender, but I heard it got even worse. And I didn't go see After Earth because... Vanity Project. Hard pass. Mm-hmm. And then he comes out with... And this might have been like a maybe four or five year gap. Mm-hmm. With The Visit. And it's says found footage mo- through Bloomhouse, I think. Yep. Right? Yeah. Yep. Um, which was quietly... It wasn't amazing. It wasn't the best thing. But it was kind of a step in the right direction.
0: Look, at that point, I would equ- equivalent... Or equivalent. I would make... I would say that movie is equivalent... In the spectrum of his good films, to somewhere between Lady in the Water and, yeah, The Village. Let's say that, that's Village
1: S. Yeah, that's pretty fair. Okay? Yeah.
0: But that's a huge step up yeah. from where he was. And don't forget, though, he did have sort of, I think, a really unfairly criticized film and, and panned film that he produced during there mm-hmm. called Devil. Yes. Tight, quiet little film. Mm-hmm. That was supposed to be a big moment because that was the first in a three-picture deal, right? Yeah. So after after Earth, Mm -hmm. I think he's pretty much DOA for most people in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. He somehow scores a three-picture deal known as the Night Chronicles. And the first entry in the Night Chronicles is going to be... Devil. Devil. Actually, I don't think that's a bad film. Yeah. Okay. It does relatively well per the amount that it costs to make. Story is the second movie... In the night chronicles is a courtroom drama inside the jury room that has a supernatural element okay i'm yeah. slightly intrigued yeah and the third film yeah. unbreakable too yeah never got out of the box yeah. neither of the second and third films ever got mm-hmm, out of the box no. but what happened
1: I think it, is the buzz about yeah, Unbreakable 2 continued? It piqued the interest again in... Certainly mine and yours. Yeah, exactly. I was Maybe if it was just the two of us, like... It, like, like, maybe we should
0: go see this movie again to make it some more money exactly. so that we keep the night going. Maybe ten right?
1: more times, yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, but yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about Unbreakable yeah, yeah. and some, uh, some of the thematic elements in it. Right off the bat, you'll notice this is kind of different from most Hollywood films. You know, if you watch a current movie like... infinity war or star wars or bohemian rhapsody you could take a stopwatch and time every time there's an edit or a cut and you probably at 10 5 to 10 seconds there's going to be an edit or a pan to a different angle yeah unbreakable is pretty unique and there's many many long takes and that's one shot unbroken by an edit or a cut and it's they just kind of let the actors you know do their thing there's a lot of them and they're done really well, whether they're they're like far away and then like tight pull-ins, like when they're on their date. Mm-hmm. But you see it right from the get-go in the opening scene, which is kind of reflected in this large mirror in a department store yeah. with the birth of Elijah Price. And, you know, it's a mere reflection how apt for someone who's going to go by the name moniker of Mr. Glass. And a lot of his early scenes are reflected through a television screen, a mirror. I think the- our
0: introduction to him is in the glass at his um, art studio, right? Yeah, limited edition. Yeah, yeah, watching yeah, him talk to the guy, of yeah. The glass and, and the glass, and then yeah.
1: yeah, through the the windows of, of limited edition, his shop.
0: Brilliant.
1: Um, and to contrast that with David Dunn, who a lot of his scenes are primarily feature a dominant color of of green. Uh, his brain poncho that he wears at work is green, uh, and he wears that when he decides to you know help people and and do good. But um, even the stadium decor at, at his job, like the the wrought iron fencing and the banners, it's all green because, the, you know, this is his job of protection yes. at, at that stage.
0: So I think you're getting to one of the things that Shyamalan's really good with, which is archetypal themes in film. Mm-hmm. Right. So green is rebirth or genesis or birth. And just as recently as this this past week, he came out and said, look, the color for David Dunn is green because he's the protector or giver of life, okay? And each one of the characters, the two main characters in Unbreakable, Dunn and Price, have a color. Elijah Price is being purple, right? The color of royalty because he's the royal element in this this, 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 this work. Mm-hmm. Okay, so <clears throat> as far as the amount of time that we spend in the scenes, you're right. It doesn't happen much anymore. We have long takes. It's slow zooms. And what I also like about this is when we get slow zooms or tight on shots anymore, it's to showcase the beauty of the character. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone in this film is particularly beautiful done on purpose because I think what where Shyamalan succeeds the most in Unbreakable is what if you found out you actually had superpowers? Now, there's no question... That for males, adolescents, like 9 to 13-ish, power fantasies are something that they spend most of their waking time in. And I would also argue, I don't think that's even just a male thing. I'm pretty sure girls do that too, right? But like we've all had the conversation, which was, what superpower would you have if you had it? Mm-hmm. Again, I always say super speed, but honestly, my body wouldn't be able to take it. Mm-hmm. Whatever yours is. Whatever I is. Probably, I'd
1: probably want to fly. Like That'd be the coolest thing ever.
0: Okay. The question then is, once you get it... How do you act with it? And if David Dunn's superpower is I can't be broken, I can't lay my hands on anybody because I find out what their sins are. And think about this: my weakness as water, which is a significant amount of my body, we have cursed this man with a hellish existence. Mm-hmm. How do you shower, Jesse? Exactly, right? And that's just assuming you're not sweating. Mm-hmm. Right? So you have this this amazing ability housed in this mortal coil that is completely incapable of handling it and it shows in his character. And much of this movie is watching David Dunn try to come to terms with who he is, and mostly that looks like sullen, mm-hmm. morose mm-hmm. introspection, right?
1: Exactly. Right. And there's a real brilliant scene where him and his wife do decide to give this another go and they go on a first date. Um, What's her favorite color? Exactly. No. Rust. Yeah, rust, which is oh the antithesis of water. Like water what cr- it, creates rust. What it
0: breaks something that's almost unbreakable down into it,
1: steel and rust. It, brilliant. It, exactly. Yeah, so you know, it, you know, the the movie um, it has these quietly, you know, you know, subtle moments, and the other great one too. Uh, maybe my favorite scene in the movie is the the, the weight room in the basement yeah. scene, where his the, the son is so desperate to do something with that and just be involved in his life. Yeah. So David Dunn's working out; he's bench pressing in the in the basement of his of his house, and um, he says, um, how much is that? You put too much on. So his son's like, I'll pick it off. And he actually puts more weight on because right. he's curious on – he knows. Like he knows the whole time. um, uh, And so he he lifts in even more weight and then David's like, well, how much more do you think we could do? And they, they, they put all the weights on and then like two pan cans on each side and it equates to like 375 to almost 400 pounds. So you kind of realize like he, he is stronger than the average – man and sun season it leads directly into that scene i mentioned earlier with uh him willing to prove i'm gonna shoot you and the bullet's gonna bounce off you or it won't kill you and it's it's a pretty traumatizing moment and kind of Shyamalan based that off of a piece in actual history when george reeves who played tv superman was approached by a young man who wanted to shoot him because he thought the bullet was gonna bounce off him (laughs) thankfully he was able to uh uh talk him out of it and you know George Ree- George Reeves passed because of his own other demise, but um, it was a a very reminiscent moment of, of this one uh, as well, and, the, and so like in a traditional superhero story like Spider Man and you know he becomes the mantle and has the wrestling match and Uncle Ben dies and he makes the costume. It's it's done so subtly in this one that you don't even know like like those moments are happening until like it's over.
0: So. The costuming is really important in this movie, Mm -hmm. and it has a lot to do with color. So we talked about, you know, his color, David Dunn's color being green, the protector of life. Okay, so you said earlier that if you had a superpower, it would be flight. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's take a common flying superhero, which is Superman. And I'm going to pose a question to you. Does his cape actually serve as an air rudder, or is it just an aesthetic piece of the costume?
1: I would almost say, I don't know. I don't know. Right. Yeah.
0: It serves no purpose yeah. other than it just looks good. Yeah. And that gets to the larger hole, which is, although we like superhero costumes, mm-hmm. if I was going to take on the task of fighting an insurmountable amount of crime, mm-hmm. I wouldn't do it in leather or tights. Right? Mm-hmm. Chafing, cold. Like We could get on and on with this. Yeah. David Dunn's superhero costume is a poncho. Yeah. Which for obvious reasons makes sense because it keeps him dry. Mm -hmm. But there's another element to that that's also very, very, very cool. And that's the hood element. Mm -hmm. When you take a hood and you cover your face and the movie is shot the way it is with drab, dark tones, Mm -hmm. it essentially covers your identity. Mm -hmm. So we have a completely, for the first time that I can think of, Mm -hmm. functional superhero outfit. And that train sequence where we sort of get the unveiling of David Dunn for the first time, Mm -hmm. where he walks among the crowd and essentially puts his arms out, Christ-like crucifixion almost, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. And Shemilin does have ties Mm -hmm. to religious elements. If you see his very first film with Rosie O'Donnell, it's all about a little boy trying to figure out what God is. Even this
1: one, like if you take the biblical names, Elijah Elijah was prophesied to return to earth to pave the way for the coming of the son of David. Unbelievable. A savior. Brilliant. Yeah.
0: So, which is curious. I'm glad you brought that up because I have a a theory, but hold on, we'll get back to it. Mm -hmm. Um, As we kind of move through this, and he's essentially sacrificing himself for the betterment of all society. When the bad guys, and I do that with the scare quotes around it. When Mm -hmm. the bad guys touch him, they are revealed in the train in color. Exactly. The red shirt. Green. yeah, The green shirt, the yellow shirt. And you get... A never-ending list of bad guys. How many racists and thieves and rapists. And if that's your job Mm -hmm. and you're supposed to protect even Philadelphia, just Philadelphia, from that, you'll never have a moment's peace. Exactly. That's assuming that when you find them, Mm -hmm. the cops are able to remove them from the city, Mm -hmm. which we already discussed. That's not possible. Exactly. So this poor man... Is taking the mantle of protecting people, hoping that he's not too late. Because remember that precognitive idea, that mm-hmm. spider sense. In fact, mm-hmm. is revealed in Shyamalan's work through the use of, of color. Color. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's right? good,
1: and that's... it's so it's so subtle the way it's done. But um, that leads directly into the scene before the twist, yeah. which I want to talk about because this is my favorite part of the movie. When he actually goes to this house, he's picked one of these people, the Orange Man, which real quick, the Orange Man in Shyamalan's original conception was supposed to be Kevin Wendell Crumb, the Horde. From Split. Yeah, but Shyamalan ended up loving these characters so much, he, there was just wasn't enough room and time to expand on all these ideas. Mm-hmm. So he just kept it to just this this um, home invader who has killed the the mother and father of this house and he has the, the, the children um, captive. So David Dunn goes in there very covert like rescues the kids sees the mother and it's that drape scene that you're talking about and he's pushed into the pool and uh, you're like holding your breath at that point because like not only is is he on the pool but like the, he falls on that tarp yeah. and you know if you, sh- if you struggle you're going to pull it in yeah. and it's going to like suffocate you. So it's like He's saved by the two children and goes back upstairs to defeat the orange man. And And one of my favorite shots ever it was this long take, one mm. one shot, almost kind of like in the corner of the yeah. of, of the room yep. of him in a chokehold of, of this guy, and this and the orange man's trying to, you know, elbow him and get him off, and he's smashing him into the drywall. It's done so well. So well. And David comes to the terms and I think he was almost judged jury and executioner in this scene. I think he realized that the crime or the the punishment fits the crime. You know, you killed these parents and yeah. kept these kids captive. Like I, I have to just take you out right here. Mm-hmm. Um immediately goes into the most poignant moment of of the whole film. Earlier there's a there's a reference that um on the date, when did you realize that this relationship wasn't gonna work out.
0: So understand this date is David Dunn and his wife Audrey. Audrey trying to sort of put the pieces back together of what's left of their relationship. So they're like trying it again from the ground up. And so it's let's go get a drink first date kind of thing. Okay, continue. Mm-hmm. Sorry.
1: So they're talking about when did you first know that it wasn't going to work? Mm-hmm. And uh David says, well one night I had a nightmare. And it was the first time I've had one and I didn't, I didn't wake you up or I didn't like let you know. Kind of like, you know, that's the beginning of the communication breakdown between these two and this kind of separation, this dissonance between the two. So after he's assumed this mantle of hero and he's, I think he finally feels the first, you know, satisfaction and, and, and joy in his life that he's actually done. I think he's known about these abilities his whole life. He's finally done something about it. He's done some a good deed. He takes his wife from the downstairs bedroom where she's been living upstairs to his bedroom where he's been sleeping and puts her in his bed. And he gets in there with her and he says, I had a bad dream. So they've repaired that communication. With one line of dialogue like that, that's it's amazing. It's 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 so and like it's almost like I think of the later Shyamalan. I'm like I can't believe he did that. <laughs> I can't believe this is the same guy,
0: but in that same scene too, or that same sequence, the way that he gets Audrey back upstairs into their bedroom now mm-hmm, with mm-hmm, him mm-hmm. is fireman's carry. Mm-hmm. right? Which I think it is also another time or continued mastery <clears throat> over. His taking traditional superhero shtick mm-hmm. and weaving it into everyday grounded yeah. um, shots, mm-hmm. right? Like the hero, we've seen the hero Fireman carry the damsel in distress, even though she's not in distress in this scene, mm-hmm. time and time and time again. And here we see the same thing, like literally, Fireman carries her up the stairs. So, a couple things in that, right? He's touching her. So whatever sin she's committed, he's, seen. he's made his peace with. And mm-hmm. seen and made mm-hmm. his peace with. And secondly, as he's carrying her up to the scene, and we have to also pay nod to the score at this point, right? Beautifully scored.
1: This is one of my favorite soundtracks. It, it swells in that scene where oh, he's man. choking out the, oh, the orange man. Yep. In the opening bit with like kind of like the like the, the, the almost techno-y beats, and the, they're repeated again in the train station. Yep. An amazing score by James Newton Howard, who was like his like, perennial scorer in his early works but yeah continue
0: so she opens her eyes up and allows it to happen Mm -hmm. and there's that moment like okay now we have hope Mm -hmm. the thing that's so remarkable about what you said with him finding his place and coming to um an understanding about what his place in society is Mm -hmm. is it's the gift yeah for mr glass isn't it yeah Because if Mr. Glass never comes along... He never never knows. He never finds out. He continues down this sullen, dark, morose road of loneliness. And only through the common language of comics Mm
1: -hmm. and Mr. Glass do both of the characters get what they want mm-hmm. and i don't want to spoiler the ending too much but i think that's same in all comic books i don't think heroes can exist without their villains and villains can exist without their heroes right so they need each other right um so immediately after that scene there's a breakfast moment and the sun comes down and he is uh, david dunn slides him the newspaper and it's a artist's rendition of the The hooded poncho that we've been talking about. Literally introducing the character in a comic book in the newspaper. Exactly. Brilliant. And uh, saying uh, such and such person saved uh, the two kids. Parents found dead. And the son knows it as his father. And real quietly because mother's trying to like cook up some bacon. Um, (laughs) uh, He says, you were right. You were right. You knew all along, and and there's a repair of that relationship with like two lines of dialogue and a and a look, and, and just, then curses his
0: son, right? Because what does he tell his son?
1: Yeah, Shh, exactly. Don't tell her. Yeah, this is between us. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so that's good, and so that this leads way into the final what was a four or five minutes of the movie. Yeah, where David Dunn goes to see Elijah at his grand uh, gallery opening at limited edition. Which um, is a,
0: a comic book art gallery that's taken the original prints or lithographs of the artist's drawings. be a pretty cool
1: store to go to, actually. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> and selling them. Yeah. And also selling well done art in just comics. So essentially, comic book art mm-hmm. for sale in limited edition mm-hmm. quantities. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, go. At this scene, he meets his mother, um, who says he's come a long way. He's like, he had a couple of spills there that dang near almost about broke him. And. Um, Then they go into his, like, private gallery, and he says, he's like, it's begun. He shows him the newspaper, and he says, this is the moment where we We shake hands. hands. Exactly.
0: Elijah Price's hand comes out, David Dunn takes it, handshake, Mm -hmm. his friends, and all of Elijah Price's sins are revealed. Mm -hmm. And we come to find out that Elijah Price is behind multiple
1: tragedies ter- terrorist attacks he's that like, have
0: happened in philadelphia that have been referenced prior in the film
1: plane crash apartment fire and then east rail 177 so they, they actually do it the, he's really good like we should have known this was coming like way ahead of time but like we're so enveloped in the movie that we don't think about it like done the, the in a
0: way when they like when you flash back and see him mm-hmm. in the either preliminary stages of the terrorist act or some stage of the terrorist act He's the only figure in color against a background of mm-hmm. grays, tans, drab, earth tones. And you know what I love about that? What I love about it? When mm-hmm. he walks off the train, yeah. he has purple shoes on. Exactly. Right?
1: Purple suede probably. Purple suede shoes. Yeah.
0: Which is his the color of his office too, right? Mm-hmm. Shemilan said he's purple because purple is the color of royalty. And Elijah Price is the royal element in this story. And his, so like if David Dunn's green... Mm-hmm. Elijah Price is purple Mm -hmm. the whole film from his car Mm -hmm. to the lining on his jacket and like those purple shoes I actually want a pair of those that's pretty good Yeah,
1: but it speaks to uh, a screenwriting trope which we we call the rule of three which he mentions it the first time when him and his son go see him at limited edition that there's been three this city's been bestowed by three tragedies and then when he's doing PT with uh, with Audrey, he mentions it again. And now we get to see them. And he was the orchestrator the whole time. Explain a little bit about the the rule of three.
0: So the idea is for the audience or the reader of the script to really get what you're trying to show them. You need to give it to them three ways. Now the trick on that is to not make it contrived and to weave it into the story so that it flows naturally. Mm-hmm. I would argue Shamilan is so good at this. Mm-hmm. That it's almost too natural. Mm -hmm. It's almost missable if you're not Mm -hmm. really paying attention. Mm -hmm. But the rule of three is if this person suffers from alcoholism, okay, you probably don't need to throw that, show that three times because that's so obvious. Mm -hmm. But if you have something that's a little bit less dramatic, You've got to give it to the audience three times in order for them to understand that, oh, yeah, that's that.
1: You can't just show it at the end and expect them to like, oh, yeah, that the whole time. Like if if that happens in a movie, that's probably the sign of a poorly written story. Right. Um, But if you do see that and you can go back and, you know, time those elements, you know, like a good screenplay from a bad one. Right. So he's – David Dunn immediately backpedals from Elijah and he sees all these newspaper clippings from all around the world saying uh, mudslide disaster and bombing and this and that and no survivors. And then he's been looking his whole life. I think since mom gave him that first comic Um, book. Wrapped in
0: purple paper. Wrapped in
1: purple paper. uh, He's been looking for this person doing horrible things to the city of Philadelphia, looking all over the world – which makes sense, right? Yeah. Because then it gives him purpose. Mm-hmm.
0: If there's... what he, well, well, he, he has, says this...
1: He has... Go ahead. I think... No, he you saying, go, you're saying, go. Go. He has the line. He says, Now that you know who you are, I know who I am. Which is such a key part of villainy. Mm-hmm. Look,
0: everyone... And I'll probably beat this up for every podcast from now until we stop doing this. Mm-hmm. The worst motivation for a villain is... I want to destroy everything so I can take it over. Because I guess they really enjoy rubble.
1: Like, that's absurd. And, like, part of that is a little Ultron-y, right? Yeah, that's the biggest problem with that is he's going to create a meteor strike to to blow up the world to rule nothing. Rocks. Yeah. Rocks. Kill all the... uh, All right, so, okay,
0: yes. Yeah. This is much more intelligent. Mm -hmm. And that is, I just need to understand why i exist because if you're there and i'm here we find balance and i'm not such a terrible person the problem though the lengths that he's had to go through in order to find why he's the way he is absolutely
1: taxing like for someone and
0: audrey even alludes to that with joseph Mm -hmm. okay so joseph shows up and they're having a discussion later in the film uh, Elijah Price has a terrible fall down the steps after he chases a guy that David Dunn assumes is a villain who in fact is a villain he breaks himself to a million pieces on these steps outside the uh, stadium he goes to Audrey for PT and he begins a discussion about her husband which sets her off because how would this guy know who my husband is exactly. she comes home and tells David's son when people have been hurt for a long time their mind gets broken too we even set that up the reason for his insanity, for doing a mudslide, or setting this building on fire, or crashing an entire train, or blowing up an airplane, or whatever the heck else he's done on a smaller level, is because he's also broken
1: upstairs. Mm-hmm. Oh man, come yeah. on. And then and then the, the film concludes with David leaving his private gallery and Elijah's just shouting at him at this point he's like you know
0: how david because of the kids it's
1: brilliant he said he said he said i should have known my place way back when you know why because of the kids and earlier in the scene when he's all broken up as like a 10 year old he talks about he's like the kids make fun of me they call me mr glass because my bones break like my bones break like glass like that's his villain name like oh and a perfect villain name yes and uh It's all set up very well. Now, I want to talk about this really, really quickly. And, you know... um, They called me Mystical. Yeah. Um, Alyssa brought to my attention that uh, Glass is going to use flashback scenes of uh, the Unbreakable characters. But they're not... They're deleted scenes from this movie um, that didn't make the final cut. And she was describing one of them to me of... They're going to show a scene... Spoilers for Glass for you too. Oh, I don't want to know this. No, 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 no. That's good. Right. But uh, of a scene of him um, young, I think before the television reflection scene.
0: Is it the t- is it the amusement park scene? Yeah, that's that's on the. I've seen that. That's actually on the disc too. Unbreakable. That's on... Yeah,
1: exactly. Right, okay. So, but when I saw it on TV, it was it was in, in the film. It was in the film. So they're gonna show that. So she's describing this. This. Uh, she's like, yeah, he's on a roller coaster and he tries to pad himself, but they fall. And he, I was, I was like, wait a minute, like. I've seen that scene right. before, so I, I pulled out the disc, and it's he's on a tilt-a-whirl, and he has the stuffed animals on e- each side of him, and he just wants to be a kid, have a good time, and they fall through, and oh my gosh, it's so heartbreaking to watch. Like, But you know what else is brilliant about that scene, too? Yeah. The inside of the car of the tilt-a-whirl? And the people walking by. Purple. Yeah.
0: The car's purple. Oh,
1: shoot, I didn't even notice that.
0: Yep. So if you guys ever get a chance to check out the DVD with the deleted scenes, he has a little...
1: Or not even that. You're probably going to see that scene. You'll see it. You'll see the scene in this movie.
0: Going back to the cost of this movie, that actually was the most expensive scene in the entire film. Mm -hmm. And he said in the DVD special edition deal Mm -hmm. that he took it out. It was the hardest cut that he had to make because it was the most expensive. Mm -hmm. But he felt like... It stopped the story, and so he wanted to get back to telling the story, and it didn't make it. So it's funny that they're going to use That's it. That's almost
1: subjective, though, because that scene's actually really good. Oh, the kid's arm is broken so gruesome. It's broken, and he's... It's so, he's he, the animals fall through, and he's, he's like, Mom, help! And she's trying to stop the ride, and it's too late. It's too late at this point, and you just have to wait for it to end. Yep. So yeah. when she said that, I was like, wait, like they're going to show that? Like I was like, I've seen that scene before. Mm-hmm. Where have I seen it? But when you watch it on TV, it's... They include that footage in in the movie, so I always thought it was a part of it, and it wasn't. Just oh, like, huh? That's interesting. The original ending of the Sixth Sense was an extended ending, and the movie just ends after he like evaporates into fade out white, and then he uh, is talking to. Um, Does he show up and get on a
0: like get on a wheel and throw some clay with his? Wa- oh, that's, <laughs> that's that's
1: ghost. A ghost. <laughs> but the, the movie just ends at that point, and in the 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 extended ending, it's like a pan over of him on his wedding video saying. I love you, uh, I love you, Anna. And um, he's like, I never thought I could come up here in front of my friends and my family and say the things that are inside me. And it's like this zoom in on like their wedding video that she watches repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And it's so good, but mm-hmm. they, they cut that too. And I'm like, Whoops. you're cu- you cutting all the best scenes. But, well, I think we've talked about Unbreakable, the themes, the story, the history, which this movie has a very fascinating history. Um, now, um, it's it's beknownst to say and I don't I don't want to give spoilers for for the next film in this East Rail 177 trilogy which is going to be split from 2017 but um I never thought I never thought we were gonna get to to this point where the story was going to continue and I'm excited to see the conclusion to this like I don't know. It like if even if it's bad I'll probably still like have those moments like if I hear that music in there like it's going to get me all riled up. Oh, yeah. Like like that, that 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 sweeping music. Um I just feel like it's a victory that it got made.
0: Okay, so what I've read and I've been very careful not to spoil this for myself. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. this movie is probably the most anticipated film of For me in the last 10 years, because so much of where I am and things I think about film are a result of Unbreakable, okay? What I read is that it's fairly deliberate, just mm-hmm. like Unbreakable is, mm-hmm. but ready with this? Yeah. For the best ending in film that we've seen in the last 10 years. Ooh, That's guess. from multiple reports on Twitter, so it's on yeah. Twitter, so obviously it's 100% accurate. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Uh, which you kind of put a bug in my ear. Mm -hmm. So you were talking about his son and his son being the sidekick. And I'm wondering just exactly where maybe we sort of go with that. So we'll see. I mean, I I pray to God the ending is not. His son's the sidekick. Like we don't need a Robin, but. um,
1: And we've done a good job of, we've been praising this movie and how subtly brilliant it is, which it is subtly brilliant. And it's not the 100% most perfect movie ever made like if any if there's a weak link you know Robin Wright Penn when she's still married to Sean Penn at this point she's she, she's kind of I don't know she kind of floats her way through this movie she's like really quietly like oh, she kind of bores me in this like and she's like the one that kind of didn't like bring it to this movie okay. but if that's like a tiny you're shooting friends Joseph oh wait okay so at the end of these pot you have to listen to the very end because you're you're gonna get always like a nice little teasing hilarious sound bite for every film that we review and just wait for this week's one but yeah, she's kind of I don't know she's kind of just there where everyone else is like has like a nice element and if that's a knock against the movie like there's nothing you're ever gonna like <laughs> it's just it's it's, it's, it's it's a pretty good movie if like that's like yeah. the one thing and like even that she's like that that date scene she it's good they're good there's great chemistry there but um to wrap it all up, I would like to ask you Matt, how would you rate? unbreakable
0: okay so again a quick review we have five different levels right rot gut is garbage like don't waste your time well yeah pretty bad call i'm gonna say call is a pretty a, a pretty palatable film
1: that with could, some good moments that you could never watch again
0: <laughs> well you know i mean like in, in the world of call bourbon right mm-hmm. it's makers like makers functionally itself is all right I'd rather have basil. I'd certainly rather have poppy. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's it's okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So then we get to single barrel. Obviously, that's a bit better. And top shelf. I, I have to give this movie a rating of top shelf. And I'm not even going to I am super biased on this film. Mm-hmm. Because I think he is so precise in the way it is delivered. And I think the movie is a victim of its own success. Mm-hmm. It's 20 years too early. Yep. Jesse, if this movie comes out now when we're better at superheroes than we are. It's a hit. It's got to be. Yeah. Right? And it opens it more than 20 plus million, which isn't a failure at all. Mm-hmm. But it falls into that Hollywood hates 30 to 90 million dollar films. Actually, they hate anything more than like 5 million to 90 million dollars. Yeah. They want one location under 3 million yeah. or blockbuster, right? Exactly. Okay, so... It just fell into that unfortunate spectrum of, of price. Okay, mm-hmm. For me, Top Shelf. Mm-hmm. I love this film. Mm-hmm. It's one of the five most important films I've ever watched. Mm-hmm. For me, it is in the pantheon of greatness, despite the Robin Wright pin. She doesn't bug me as much as she does you. Mm-hmm. Um, top Shelf, A+, plus, Slam Dunk, um, Pappy Van Winkle of films. <laughs> Pappy for Van me. Winkle.
1: I, I want the podcast when we can drink Pappy Van Winkle. That's going to be great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um uh, for for mine though, I, I, I'm gonna like I love this movie, uh, uh, j- just like you do, and uh, like I think it's criminally underrated. Like if there's like the, like maybe the most underrated movie of the last twenty five to thirty years. Yep. Like you're right, too many years, uh, uh like t- too late, wrong timing. Film success to me is all about timing. Like the, the the reason like a film like Paranormal Activity, and we should talk about that movie one of these days, or 1989's batman or jaws like those movies uh, are of their time and unbreakable isn't of its time it's like it's 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 too smart for its time Mm -hmm. so because of that i think it just never found its audience but man if i could just recommend this movie to anybody i think you'll find something to like about it um uh, for me i'll have to go single barrel you know top shelf you know they're gonna have to be like complete and and it does this movie does have a few faults and a few falters and you know some moments of clunky dialogue but man that's nitpicking but i'm gonna go single barrel and single barrel bourbon is a unique bourbon this is a four-star movie a single barrel bourbon is going to have a taste unique all of its own Mm. and uh each bottle of a single barrel burn is going to be different from the next so This film's kind of like that. This is a superhero movie unlike one that you're really ever going to see. This is not Avengers Infinity War. This is not Tim Burton's Batman or Joel Schumacher's Batman for that matter. This is Shyamalan's Unbreakable. And it's a quiet, subtle superhero film that's got many moments of brilliance. And you wonder what happened to the guy that did this. But don't fret because... I never thought I would say this in the rest of my life. Whenever I pass on, but I never thought Shyamalan could come back, especially after the happening Last Airbender, After Earth. Like that's in Hollywood, you know, curtains. Your curtains, it's like over. Your poison, like you just ask like somewhere right. like like Mike, Brian De Palma, Brian De Palma, Mike Myers, like Love Guru. If you have a bomb, you're done. Oh, Michael Cimino, Heaven's Gate, mm-hmm. like wait. Mm-hmm. I, I would never thought you could have like resurrected and like and done it again, but I, I he's doing it and he's he's gone back to the books and I, I knew he had to do this. He had to go back to these movies that were simpler, with high concept ideas. Yep. And um, I'm looking forward to glass. So I'm gonna have to go with the rating of single barrel for this one. But that's not a knock against the movie. It's it's amazing. I think it's it, I think it, that's a reasonable yeah. grade. So before we wrap up for the day, Matt, let's um, end this with the nightcap. So again, being that it's 2019, new year, we have 12 months of films to go. Me and you see probably about 50 plus films in the theater in a calendar year. doesn't include the stuff that we're watching at home and the old stuff that we're going back to. But in 2019, my question to you is, what film are you most looking forward to?
0: Okay, so look, it's really easy to pick the low hanging fruit of Glass or the New Infinity War, but in fact it probably is Glass, but I'm not going to do that, okay? Because that's just I just can't mm-hmm. after this that this podcast. It's honestly in about what two weeks. It's Serenity, like if we can get a film noir vehicle with hey <laughs> and Anne Hathaway, yeah. which are two beautiful creatures unto themselves, and it delivers in a way that I pray to God that it delivers with this generation's. Claude Rains, right? Michael Clark, is that his name? Michael- Jason Clark. Jason, <coughs> Jason Clark.
1: Clark, yeah. Right, he's yeah. this.
0: God bless Claude Rains too. Yes. And while we're at it, in all the superhero thing, I'm going to raise one up right now for Stanley, because a lot of this is done because of Stanley. Ex- so this is to Stanley exactly. David yes. Dunn, Peter Parker, and Reed Richards, mm-hmm. right? D D P P. Right. Okay. No, it's Serenity. Like I'm dying for Mm -hmm. someone to make neo noir, film noir, any kind of reasonable noir Mm -hmm. to make people realize like the gun and the girl Mm -hmm. have never gone out of style. Yeah. So that's where I'm going. I'm going to give you serenity.
1: Mm -hmm. And Matt's Matt's a huge fan of film noir. It's his favorite genre, which is non-existent today. Like kind of Brian De Palma, kind of the way of the western, like and the musical for that matter. Maybe that one better so than most. Um. The difference between film noirs
0: and musicals is one of those sucks ass and the other one's really good. Exactly. Make way that, that.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So they just don't make these movies anymore. So yeah, Serenity hopefully is like a step in that direction where we can have these even like Neo Noirs, that would be like that would be something. Sure. Like something to hang our hat on. Yeah. You're right though, it is hard for Avengers Endgame, it's hard not to pick that just because we've been watching these movies for nine uh, ten plus years. We're twenty 20 films in on this cinematic universe like how could that like we not be waiting for the conclusion of that but i'm not going to pick that one either you know and i'm looking forward to star wars episode nine whatever that movie is going to be called but i'm actually going to go with uh once upon a time in hollywood which is actually quentin tarantino's new new film coming out in i believe at the end of july Hmm. just because you know tarantino's so Iconic. Oh, 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 iconic over the top and he's come on record saying he's only making 10 movies in his career and he's done all well, this is film nine so this is like one and then we get one more after this but um it's a story about an actor and his stunt double trying to like wade through the debauchery that is hollywood to like make a name for themselves played by dicaprio and brad pitt set against the backdrop of um the charles manson murders with sharon tate like it's like a bizarre combination i don't know how to make it fit in my head but if there's a guy that can like find like a way to do it tastefully and then do like a unique spin on that late 60s la setting it's him yeah right it it can only be him like and i'm just thinking about the soundtrack we're gonna get yeah that's what i just thought the same thing the look and you know this movie's got pacino kurt russell james mars it's out, like it's stacked the cast is stacked so I, that could be pretty pretty special and I'm a bit I, I love Tarantino most of his movies like I'm not a, as big of the Kill Bill fan as you are but I do really like when his movies come out and they are kind of like you must go see them um so I think I have to pick that one you know I want to pick the superhero in the Star Wars films but uh, yeah
0: That's not to say you're not looking forward to it
1: exactly so but, yeah, I am looking forward to that and um with that note, um, that that'll be the end of the first episode of Rye Smile Films with um, talking about Unbreakable. Next week we will come back and we'll continue this journey on Eastrail One Seven Seven yeah. with Split, which was another quietly surprise, and we got to talk about how we saw that movie too because that was also kind of surprising, like when we kind of found out like what that movie was all about, but. Um, we're going to take a look at that and um, kind of go through the, the, the same timeline. And um, to kind of raise your glasses one more time, I'd like to say cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. And thank you, listeners, for listening. And we will see you next week with Split. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to Rise Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Instagram and twitter to stay in the know for future episodes and be sure to subscribe to us on itunes and podbean unbreakable is property of touchstone pictures blinding edge pictures barry Mendel productions and limited edition productions incorporated and no copyright infringement is intended until next time cheers
0: and friends listen to each other they don't And they don't shoot each other, do they, Audrey?
1: No shooting friends, Joseph.